This is The Neutral Position, hosted by Nick Palmashano, Bringing honesty and reason back into conversation. Here's your host, Nick Palmashano. I want to take a quick moment to thank one of our sponsors. When the founders of Ugly Chews reached out to sponsor the program and I looked at their website and saw the Chews, I have to tell you, I thought Ugly Chews were appropriately named. They're very ugly and your dog chews on them. Nailed it. Then the samples arrived and I realized they are not named correctly. They are far, far uglier than the word ugly lets on. They're hairy. They're not artificially colored. They're gross. But you know who didn't find them gross? My athletic body with a dumb face that won't let him breathe, Boston Terry. Rufus. Rufus can't get enough of them. Instead of sitting around slobbering and struggling to breathe, he sits around slobbering on an ugly chew while he struggles to breathe. He loves the damn things. These uglier than ugly chews are healthy. There are no artificial ingredients. There are no chemicals. It's just disgusting, horrific nature wrapped up in an ugly sun-dried chew. And in addition to being good for your dog's digestion, these things don't fall apart and get soggy like rawhide. I hate to say it because they're so damn ugly, but they're the best thing to happen to dogs since man let wolves get close to the fire and domesticated them. And if you're not happy with them, ugly chews gives you your money. Money back. So if you want to make your dog happy and healthy, go to UglyChews.com. That's right, UglyChews.com. Hey guys, I'm Nick Palmashano, and this is The Neutral Position. I have an amazing show today. Our guest is Rufus Edmiston. And to be honest, it would take me an hour and a half to tell you all of the things that this man has done in his life. He delivered the subpoena to Nixon uh, during the Watergate scandal. He ran for governor. He was the North Carolina AG. Um, just, I know that you have a story for everything. So I would love for you to introduce yourself as you would like everyone to know you. Well, now, Nick, you, you left out the most important thing. I did. I was a state champion wrestler. <laughs> and I know that you're a wrestler. Yes, you've sir. got kids. You've got a, a daughter who is a fantastic wrestler. That's true. Which is, is a new sort of thing to me. Yep. Because I, I was weight 154 mm -hmm. in high school and became a state champion wrestler. And now everybody always leaves that out. I think, I think that's a signal achievement. Yeah. So I want to add to that. That is, it, it's been a full life. I grew up on a farm in Boone, North Carolina, Nick. Mm -hmm. uh, there were five boys and one girl. App State country. And I do not miss getting up at 5.30 to milk cows. And uh, sometimes you, you've heard about cow kicking the bucket. Mm -hmm. Well, you got penalized very badly by the parent if you let a bucket of milk go bad wow. by letting a cow kick it. So you had to be very precise. Uh, we had a loving family. I never knew any time in my life when one of my parents wasn't at home. And I, I just think of all the kids today that, that don't have that security. Now, I yeah. couldn't wait to get off of the farm and swore that I'd never go back, but now I spend a lot of time gardening. So I've had a good life. I've, I've been elected to various offices, and that is because of the goodness of people. And I, I hope that I've been able to help some people along the way. I, I guess, I guess all of us think, uh, did we make a difference in some way? Mm -hmm. So that, that's sort of been the, the marker of my life. Have I made a difference in somebody's life for, for the good? Yep. Now I'm sure that some people I put in jail don't think that I <laughs> probably <laughs> gave them a great deal of goodness in their life, but maybe so. Yeah. So I love that you talked about um, the importance of children having you know a a foundation and i know that you do a lot of work with children um, and we're going to come back to that but since you opened the door on it um, i know what it means to be a state champ i know because uh, i missed it by a point oh my. <laughs> oh you saw the light I, see, I didn't see the light it wasn't it, you well, know you it, didn't get pinned no 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 it was a, it was a it was a close affair but uh, i i understand the pain of that failure um, but I know what it takes to get there. I know the, you know, the, um, 
the hours running, the 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 suits, you know, sweating, spitting, uh, you know. Uh, my girlfriend when I was in high school was like, you know, why do you have all these Skittles around? Like you must really like Skittles. And then she saw that I'd put one or two in my mouth because the sugar brings out the saliva and then you spit it out and I could drop about half a pound a pack of Skittles. So I used to just. Oh, absolutely. You know, um, mine was double, double bubble gum. Yep. We all have it. And these weird wrestler things. Um, and you, that's the, one of the first things you asked me about, but how did you get into wrestling? Right back. Well, it, <laughs> well, I, I went out for basketball first mistake and, uh, believe it or not, I hate to confess this. It wasn't for me. I fouled out one night in four minutes. A foul a minute. <laughs> and my brother Joe said to me, he said, uh, Brother Rufus, you, you have taken up the wrong sport. Let's do wrestling. So I, I decided that was for me and not basketball and uh, was state champion my senior year. And there were, as you know, the very strict rules about weight requirements and this mm -hmm. and that. And I don't miss those days. I'm, I'm so glad you told me that they don't require all that spitting and they it do. almost re reminds you of those animals, uh, yamas that spit on you and yeah. you, you had to go around people say, what are you, why are you spitting out there? It, it's, it's a much but, healthier environment. When kids say that they're cutting weight now, they're talking about two to five pounds off their walk around weight. Not what we, right. not what we used to do. Yeah. You know, I, for football season, I was 171. I wrestled at 140. So, yeah. so, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that you had a similar kind of path. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I did play football. I was a, a right end. And I, one time we played this team called Beaver Creek in Ash County. Mm -hmm. And there was a fumble ball. Well, the, the boy from Boone, Rufus Edmiston, picked it up. <laughs> and so help me God, I ran the wrong way. <laughs> and I heard out of the audience, wrong way, Rufus, wrong way, Rufus. And I have never been so embarrassed in my life. I finally got my bearings, turned around and ran the right way and got back to where I picked up the ball. But can you imagine on the bus ride back home from Beaver Creek to Boone, which was only 30 miles. Yep. But it seemed like it was a hundred miles. <laughs> at least you didn't, at least you didn't get a safety. It could have been worse. Oh, could've it could have been, been worse. Oh, not much worse though <laughs> than the ribbing I got. So sports, sports are good for, for kids in high school. As long as, long as parents don't take it uh, so seriously. Yeah. I've, I've seen parents that some little league games get, get so irate, so mad that they spoil the game for the kids. I don't yeah. understand that. Absolutely ruin it. Um, my wife and I coach wrestling. And uh, sometimes with the high school, currently with the middle school, we kind of f follow our kids through, through their journeys. And um, this year was great. But I have had years where, you know, you've got the parent telling you what what the program should look like. You've got the parent saying, you know, I think that my kid should be doing this or putting so much pressure on the kid. Yeah, yeah. It, it's wild. It's like, hey, you had your chance. You did whatever you're gonna do. The, th the first thing that I tell kids that I'm coaching at the beginning of every season is, I don't care if you win or lose. And it, it really, like everyone looks around and I say, look, I, I want you to perform as well as you can. You know, mm -hmm. winning is important. I want you to learn how to win, but you winning or losing doesn't affect my life. I'm going to go home. I'm going to eat with my family. I've already had my journey. What I want is to teach you character, to teach you hard work. If you put work into wrestling, you will get better. I can't tell you you're going to be a state champ. I don't know what you have in you, but I know that if you're terrible now and you work hard all year, by the end, you'll be less terrible. And mm -hmm. that's the life lesson. Is, and the life lesson too, Nick, is have fun. Yes. While you're at it. Absolutely. Uh, I, I feel the same way about uh, scholarship now. It worries me that, that so much emphasis is put on our kids to prepare to get into the best school. Yeah. Uh, the, the mercilessness that is thrust upon kids today mm -hmm. to achieve, 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 uh, 
I worry about the mental health of kids. I do too. I don't require any of that pressure when I grew up at Appalachian High School in Boone. Now, you got some pressure from home if you took that report card home and it didn't show very well. Of course. You got some pressure. Of course. You had to go back to the back 40 and plow the corn. <laughs> but the, the pressure that it put on kids, so I, I have some uh, nephews and nieces who seemed like their whole high school career get into was college. spent worrying about what college am I going to get into and then taking courses to take the test. Yeah. Uh, back when I took the LSAT to go to law school, there was no, no such thing as as a test to learn how to take the test. And now no person entering law school would dare fail oh, you can. to take a course on how to take the test. You have to. And it's just, it's yeah. a never ending yeah. uh, crusade to, to make you almost a nervous wreck. Yeah, but the crazy thing is, I don't think it matters. Like I, I do think, hey, if you get into Harvard, because of the network that you're going to get, you know, that is going to help you in life. If you get into Princeton, you know, if you go into those schools, I do think there is some value to that, but I really don't think it matters. If you're gonna, if you're a person that wants to go out and do something truly interesting and original, I don't think where you go to school matters. I think in, in embracing education is critical, but education can be anything from, you know, a series of degrees to personal learning and reading and, you know, that's my opinion. I'd love to hear. No, I, I concur with that. Uh, we're going to talk about it a little bit more. I have this outfit called the Extra Special Super Kids. Mm -hmm. And yesterday we had one of the super kids in and uh, she has already gotten out of undergrad. And these kids come from homes where they would never be expected to go to college. They've, they've overcome adversity. Some of them have just had more of a had to be an adult since they were 10 years old yep. and that's how we choose them well this one particular young lady was in a conference with us yesterday uh, about law school mm -hmm. and i had the hardest time telling her that look it hardly makes any difference if, if you want to try to go to harvard or somewhere like that yes you might get a job clerking with a supreme court justice when it's over yep but the main thing about going to law school is can you get enough education to pass the bar? Because mm -hmm. when you pass the bar, you've achieved something. It yep. doesn't really matter which law school you went to because you're gonna have to make it on your own anyway. Yep. And if you, if you follow your dreams, it doesn't matter where you go to, go to school. Uh, I, I worry now about what we're doing to the, the, the young people about these massive, massive school debts. It's a huge problem. I, I, I just, I, I know some debts that are akin to what I used to pay as, as a house payment. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, I so discourage that. And the, the trouble, Nick, is that the lenders are, in the end, private lenders that go through the government to do it. Yep. And they shove all this money on kids mm -hmm. that they don't need. Uh, this for that, hundred another twenty thousand for this, uh, ending up uh, the the usual debt now of getting through uh, a college is somewhere between fifty thousand and sixty thousand. Uh, that's an that's an immense debt for a young person. So you're telling me. And, and <laughs> over here, yeah, why not? It, yeah. it something has to be done about the spiraling cost of going to uh, higher education. And in fact, I've often thought that, why don't we still do more vocational training in high school? Absolutely. I, I, I just don't understand that. We had, when I grew up in, in the Appalachian High School in Boone, we had something called shop. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I was a farm boy, so I- I had, I had shop. I yeah. took shop. Yeah. Now, we didn't do much shop. We, we, we did a lot of touring of farms and things like that. But the, the shop that I'm talking about is how to repair a car, how to, how to build, a, how to fix a roof, mm -hmm. how to be a machinist. Yep. All those things. A plumber. Yeah. My goodness, who, a good plumber makes more than the starting lawyer, I can tell you that. Absolutely. And I, I don't know why we're wasting all that time. And this might be heresy. But Nick, far too many kids go to college 
that don't belong in college. Yeah. They just don't belong there. Yeah. They should be doing a trade. And I, I guarantee you that if if you do a, a trade real well, you're going to make more money mm -hmm. being a plumber than you will in two years being a history teacher. I 100% agree. There's a stigma, I think, at some point, and I think it was around the 80s. I, there's a stigma that started getting assigned to trades. Like, yes. Like you were, yes. you were more valuable or you were smarter or you were better or whatever if you went to, you know, college. Um, and, you know, the the trades were for the kids that maybe, you know, weren't as smart. That, that was the stigma that I kind of grew up with, mm -hmm. uh, you know, late 80s, early 90s. Um, and it's just simply not true. It's not true now. I it's, can tell you that. It's, later. Not, it's not true. When that plumber comes, I'm, I want him to. I want him to do his job. Or her, the females had a female plumber last time we came, and she did a real wonderful job, and uh, she was proud of it. Yeah. And and I and I thought, well, this is a great profession, and it, I had no stigma feeling there at all. No, it, it's everyone's mind works in a different way. You know, I watch, you know, my dad is one of those guys like you that can kind of do everything. So he can build a house from the ground up. He can build a car from the ground up. He was the first member of our family to go to college and he graduates valedictorian. You know, he's one of those guys. It's like, all right, you know, thanks, dad. Like, thanks for, you know, building up this standard. But, um, you know, you watch somebody that actually knows what they're doing. Like when I look at a car, I could fix a car, but it's it's like I have to really kind of go through the steps and think about, all right, what might this be? Whereas my dad can look at it right out of me. It's this because of X, Y and Z. He just knows oh, sure. and he knows like what has to happen. I can build furniture. It takes me five times as long as it would take him. So when you watch somebody that is an artisan at their craft and uh, it's amazing. And to, to not appreciate that, I think, is a problem. And I, I think it's swinging back around. But, you know, I, I think it's important to recognize um, excellence in all things. Well, growing up on a farm required that you know how to do it, know a little bit about everything. About everything. If the tractor broke down, mm -hmm. you had to fix it. Yeah. If, if something was wrong with the fence, you didn't call the fencing company to come fix it. And you mentioned it, having worked for John Deere a moment yeah. ago. I saw where there's some controversy now where uh, the manufacturers of farm equipment do not want the farmers to be able to repair their own things. Yeah. And I'm sure you've thought about that quite a mm -hmm. bit. And I did see where John Deere has decided that they will allow farmers in certain circumstances to fix their own equipment. You have to. And uh, you have you, to. if you're on a farm, you can't wait two weeks for somebody to, to come up. fix your equipment. Mm -hmm. That, that's why uh, my garage that my big friend, Big John, who's with us today, knows it, it looks like a farmer's shop. <laughs> uh, I've got baling wire hanging in the wall. You, mm -hmm. you saved everything yeah. on the farm because you might need it sometime. Yeah. And my wife said, if anything ever happens to you, I'm going to burn this barn down. <laughs> And I said, but don't do that. I might come back and haunt you because I might need it. I have the same. It's a habit that I got from my dad. But, you know, if an appliance goes out, I cut the cord off and I, I put the cord into like just in case. And I think I've used I, I probably have 60 cords. I think I've used one, maybe two in my entire life. But I still have this box of cords or, uh, you know, after I'm done building something, there's a little odds and ends of wood. Well, I throw them in a bucket. You know, and I have these, sure. you know, like just just in case. And I don't even know what the just in case is. Well, speaking of cords, I use them to tie up tomatoes. Oh. When I stake tomatoes. Yeah. I know cut off cords, a good thing to tie up a tomato. Yeah. So <laughs> I obviously want to talk about Watergate, but since, since you just transitioned there, um, you are an avid gardener farmer i don't know how what, what you think of yourself now i know you were once a farmer now it's more gardening or is or do you have like a essentially like a, a, a mini farm now? no no mine's a two and a half acre spread on the outskirts of raleigh and i i grow trees and shrubs and flowers okay uh, uh, and tomatoes and it, it's it's in my blood from my mother mm -hmm. i i had a little Nick for working with her because there was a, a reason for that. 
if you got your mother to say that she needed you to help her in the flower garden, you didn't have to go way down in the bottom lands to hoe the tobacco and the corn and the cabbage, <laughs> the hard work. And I would beg my mama, i say, Mama, can I help you today? And she would generally choose me because you could goof off occasionally. Yeah. You, you, it was so much better to her. And uh, I have, I'm, I'm a, a panelist on this garden show called The Weekend Gardener that's been on WPTF. I've, I've been on it for 15 years, but the gardening show has been going on for almost 40 years. Very, very popular. It's a call-in show. Wow. It started out as 15-minute show. Wow. Where, where the man read letters that people would send insects in and things like that and ask him to diagnose it and has expanded now to three hours. And it's, it's, a, it's a funny audience. We've got our, our favorites. Uh, we, we have some of the best uh, gardeners on, on the show every, every Saturday morning. Uh, I, now I'm, not, I'm not an expert. I don't know all the, the Latin names, but I... I know what my mama taught me. <laughs> she said, horse manure is good for roses and cow manure is good for gladiolus. Now just go from there. Yep. And, yeah. so, and somebody called in one time and said, well, where do you get that kind of manure? And I, I'm not going to tell you what I said. Because <laughs> I said, it's sort of like the, the south end of a, a northbound mule. <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I, got, I, I got called down by our, our host, Mike Rayley. But, but we have fun on the show. Yeah. And, yeah. and I relate back to my mother so much because she was the, the church lady, the church flower lady. Mm -hmm. And so every Saturday night, we would go to the, the, the little patch in the garden where she grew roses, mag, uh, uh, gladiolus, and all sorts of flowers. And she would take the the flower bundle down and put it on this neat little table in front of the church that said, in remembrance of me, I'll never forget that. It's still there. Wow. Sitting in that Three Forks Baptist Church. So I have the fondest memories of my dear, wonderful mother. I'm, I'm a mama's boy. That's amazing. I can't help it. That's amazing. My, um, so, uh, you know, my mom's side of the family is Portuguese. My father's side of the family is Italian. And my great grandfather, uh, Moses Amaral, um, when he came to the States, he got a plot of land and became a farmer. And he actually started the first farming radio show in Rhode Island. My goodness. And he, he ran that show, you know, essentially his entire life. My mom grew up on a farm, so she has uh, appreciation for farm work. And then my dad's side of the family, they grew up, uh, he, he uh, is Italian, was born in Italy, became a United States citizen um, after, after coming here when he was nine. Uh, but they grew up in a uh, tiny uh, town in Abruzzi, Italy called Scopoli, and it's on the side of a mountain. So um, they, their farming uh, essentially was they'd built steps down the mountain, if, if you know what I mean, kind of oh, like, yeah. uh, and that was, that was the way they farmed everything. And so when they moved to Providence, Rhode Island, uh, my grandmother and grandfather were most comfortable on this plot that was essentially on this hill that's like this. And my childhood was, my grandmother had these steps going all the way down her yard of, you know, you put the tomatoes here because of this and it, the runoff is good for this. I mean, she, it was, it's so interesting how uh, scientific, but also artistic it is, you know, depending on what you're trying to accomplish to be a good farmer. It's amazing. We, we, in the mountains, there was not very much flat land. Mm -hmm. So we did a lot, a lot of hill farming too. I think you'd make a great guest on the weekend gardener. And I'm going to arrange for you to call in sometime. Happy to do On it. the show and, and talk about it. that because I, I think that's just wonderful. There, there's something about a person that grows up with growing things. You, you, you just have a better attitude about life. Mm -hmm. I could be in the worst mood in the world and go out and take a walk in my garden and, and feel at least 50% better. Uh, it's just a wonderful therapy. And I think it's still the number one hobby in America that people still garden. Yeah. They're going back to the old ways of, of canning and mm -hmm. putting up food that way. Yeah. Old mason jars. Yep, that's what my, my parents still do that. So I get the fresh, fresh uh, pasta sauce anytime that I 
go visit my parents because right. they, they they pull it out of their garden and my dad has uh he's built like a uh, a stone wall kind of around their patio and in the stone wall he made it utility so the stone wall is about this thick filled with dirt and inside that all the hot peppers so going all the way around their patio is a little hot pepper garden so my mom can just walk out there and choose what she wants for any given meal and pull them off and have you heard of the carolina reaper i have I feel like that's too oh, much heat. It, it, <laughs> look, you have to have on gloves to touch. Yeah, it. yeah. Scorpio, Scorpio is is pretty rough, but Carolina Reaper is too rough. I grow uh, Tabasco peppers a lot mm. for my my brother in law. Yep. Who makes knockoff Tabasco sauce, and he <laughs> okay. actually likes a little bit of habanero. Yep. With Tabasco uh, peppers, mm -hmm. and they're they're sort of hard to get, so I've tried to save seed, and I've. I will soon be planting the Tabasco peppers, but I'm not planting any Carolina Reapers. They're just too dangerous. It's too, it's too much. It's it, too much. Yeah. It takes a lot of time, effort, and resources to make the neutral position, and we couldn't do it without our sponsors. In 2016, a vet named Jason Murph slid into my DMs to talk about the seasoning he had created for grilling meats. I gave him some advice on marketing, and he sent me some samples of his new brand with a donkey on each bottle emblazoned with the words, grill your ass off. Fast forward seven years. I'm at a charity event for veterans, and who's the headline sponsor? None other than grill your ass off. He still has the amazing seasoning that started it all, but now he's got condiments, beef jerky, incredible sauces, and even gear. Grill Your Ass Off won the American Freedom Fund Veteran Small Business of the Year Award and is committed to giving back to veteran causes and mentoring veteran entrepreneurs. The one downside? After using these incredible seasonings, you will be assless. That was a dad joke. You see, the product is called Grill Your Ass Off. So you know, you grill and then boom, ass gone. No, you don't like that? Okay, well anyway, check them out at grillyourassoff.com. That's grillyourassoff.com. Great taste, great company, great cause, no ass. Use NP15 at checkout for 15% off at grillyourassoff.com. That's November Papa one fiver. So what made you get involved in a kid's charity? I was sitting at my desk one day and got a call from a friend of mine who was a principal in a very poor school in Keston, North Carolina, he said, I have a group of citizens that, of kids that I was going to bring to Raleigh for a visit to Raleigh, and somebody stole our bus money. And I said, well, Johnny, I'll call you right back. Well, I picked up the phone, called two or three friends, and we raised $300. And I sent the money down to Johnny Shepard. This was some almost 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And he brought those kids up up to Raleigh. And I said, what, why, why are you bringing them to Raleigh? He said, well, they're super kids because they've done, they've done something that's spectacular and they're all poor. But it said like uh, one of them found a $5 bill last week and turned it in. I said, well, Johnny, I don't know whether I've done that or not. And, <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, let's start something like that. And I started and since that time, we've had uh, over 60 kids that have gone to college or some a school of higher education. Mm -hmm. And the way you get in, you get recommended by a school or by a teacher. Uh, we normally like them 10th, 11th or 12th grade. Mm -hmm. And we say, if you stay straight, and you're a good kid in high school and you, you have to overcome some adversity and not and not be able to go to college yeah, on your own. Yeah, of course. Uh, we'll take you on, and we're so proud of them. Uh, as I said, we had one in yesterday deciding about what law school, because mm -hmm. we, we helped her go to undergrad. Yeah. We've got one doctor out of the, out of the crowd, and numerous teachers and others. It, it's sort of the idea to give back and, and uh, it was sort of a different way of doing things because I, I think that a lot of scholarships are, are given to kids that don't need them. Mm. That's always bothered me. Yep. Now, mind you, I love the Moorhead Scholarship. Sure. I love the McCain or the, the one at NC State. I think they're wonderful. But so many of those were chosen not because they needed it and 
This this one is strictly, you probably wouldn't go to college if you didn't get our help. Yep. yep. It's called the Extra Special Super Kids Program. Which is an awesome name. And and and, and if anything, you know, I, you, you mentioned all these things that I've allegedly done. I'd rather be remembered for helping some kids get an education than being the first, first person that ever served as being on the sitting president, the attorney general, the secretary of state, the this and the that. I'd rather be remembered for the super kids because I know I'm, I'm helping some of them to pay it back. Mm -hmm. I, I absolutely understand that as I, you know, you'll laugh because when I, as I say, as I get older, but as I get older, uh, the things that I used to think were important are markedly less important. You know, there's nothing that I've accomplished that I then sit and go, wow, I'm so amazing. It's like, oh, okay, it's done. What's the next thing? Um, but, you know, I think I probably get more out of coaching kids or tutoring kids or helping young business people succeed than I do with anything I've actually accomplished yes. for myself. Like it's, it's not even close. And I'll, I'll bet your, your audience out there feels the same way. And you just got to make time for it, though. You, you mm -hmm. got to determine what are your priorities. Uh, had I rather do something to help other people, or sit back on my fat rear and watch some silly television show? Yep. Or do something to help somebody? Yep. It, it's it's even better than going to the greatest play in the world, the greatest ball game in the world. Mm -hmm. To sit there yesterday, like I did, and hear the young lady talk about her aspirations and her dreams to become an immigration lawyer. Mm. I thought, what, I've helped do that. And yeah. so many other people helped do it. Uh, yeah. that, I, that, that's enough for me. And, and no, I, it's not enough yet because there, there are many more to go. Yep. But I, I think, and I want to, I want to get into your career cause it's amazing. But I, 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 we've talked about this with a couple of guests. I think the biggest thing, everyone always complains about society, like the country, this, the country, that society, this, I cannot affect the United States of America, no matter how many people follow me or whatever. I can't, through my opinions, change the country, but I can affect my community. I can help people. I can help kids. I can help businesses. I can teach people things. And that will have a more profound effect than anything else that I do. I personally believe that. It Absolutely. Is, that one person passes that along. And and each little time that you touch somebody's life, it's a bigger thing than if you had a an audience of, of five million people. Mm -hmm. You're you're going to help do more by touching that one person's life. Yep. That could turn out to be the worst person in the world, or it could turn out to be a person that is just phenomenally wonderful in giving back to society. I agree with you totally. So speaking about passing things along, a couple years before I was born. Uh, you passed along a subpoena to then sitting President Nixon. How did you end up in that situation? I, when I left college, I went to Washington, D.C. I, I graduated in Carolina. Uh, some of you state fans and Duke fans out there, forgive me, but <laughs> I turned out all right. <laughs> and I went to D.C. hoping for a job with Senator Sam J. Urban. He, he was a senator from North Carolina. Mm -hmm. I didn't get it. So the, the first year I was there, I entered into law school at nighttime and taught the third grade. Here's this, this Baptist from Watauga County taught in a, a private Catholic school mm -hmm. and went to law school at nighttime. And finally, a job came open with Senator Sam Urban over on Capitol Hill. And I was so thrilled. I was beyond myself and went over and continued night school working for Senator Urban on the, the subcommittee on constitutional rights. Then he, he moved me over to be the chief after I graduated from law school. He moved me over to one of his other subcommittees called separation of powers. And we studied things like executive privilege, all mm -hmm. those things you hear about today yeah, and other things. Uh, and lo and behold, this thing called Watergate came along where the newspaper at that time said that a a uh, minor break-in at the Watergate Hotel and nobody paid any attention to it. Well, it kept growing and growing with Woodward and Bernstein. Mm -hmm. They kept publishing it and publishing it. And finally, it got so hot that Senator Mansfield, who was the 
majority leader at that time in the Senate, said, we've got to appoint a committee to really look into this thing. And he said, publicly said, the only person I could think of that could handle that committee would be a man named Senator Sam J. Urban from North Carolina. And I, I had worked with Senator Urban all those 10 years before. And the Senator graciously said, I want you to help me on this Watergate committee. Would you be the deputy chief counsel of the Senate Watergate committee? And of course at 30, at, at uh, oh gosh, it was about 32 years old, a job nobody that age should have. You really shouldn't. No, they shouldn't. You shouldn't have a job that, yeah. that with that immense amount of power and exposure. And I took it. And there was a reason that he chose me because I had been with him for 10 years and I knew how Capitol Hill worked. Mm. Uh, the chief counsel was a man named Sam Dash. Sam was an academician and became the chief counsel, but he didn't know a thing about Capitol Hill. Yep. So there, there's certain things like you got to have a conductor to run the train. Mm -hmm. And I was sort of like to say myself, I was the, the chief operating officer. How, how do you start a hearing? How do you do those things? How do you put together a witness list? How do, how do you do all those things? And so finally, as Watergate went on, we, we began the hearings, which by the way, were the most watched TV series of any hearing in the history of the country. We were receiving over 40,000 pieces of mail a week. Wow. There no, just think if they'd been, if they'd been email yeah. or text. Yeah. Uh, we would have had to have a 20 person staff to handle it. Uh, everybody was watching it. They, they were watching it during the day. Had uh, We had people that wrote us and said, uh, we're, I'm, a, I'm a mechanic in a garage, we've got the TV on, and I disagree with so-and-so. It was amazing how, how many people watched it because it was, it was high drama. And finally, the, the time came along when it was discovered that uh, there was a taping system in the White House. Mm. And prior to that discovery, which, which by the way was discovered by a North Carolina guy named Gene Boyce that I had brought to Capitol Hill mm. by asking Alexander Butterfield a question is there a taping system in the White House? And Mr. Butterfield paused and <laughs> said, I was afraid you were going to ask me that. <laughs> and he admitted there was. And then John Dean had been testifying that he thought that Nixon was into it up to his eyeballs. But that was before any, any relevance to the tapes. And when the tapes were discovered, they would determine whether or not John Dean had any credibility. So the committee met, and, and I, I don't know how much time we got, but I'll-, I'll As much time leave. as you want, sir. So they were meet, we were meeting in Senator Urban's office, the, the committee, in, in the executive session, nobody else in there, but Fred Thompson, who was a great guy, former yeah. Senator, yeah. Hunt for Red October. Great guy, actor, great, great actor. Great guy. Uh, Senator Baker and Senator Urban, who had, by the way, agreed that they would not disagree Mm. And that, that's civility. This, this was a total act of civility. Mm -hmm. The Watergate hearings give the, the picture of something I know you've been talking about, plain civility. Well, they met in Irvin's office, and the question was asked, well, how, how are we going to get the tapes? And Senator Baker suggested to Senator Urban, well, why don't, why don't we try to call President Nixon? Well, Reflexively, Senator Irvin turned to me and said, Rufus, go try to get President Nixon on the phone. Almost like, oh, go, go pick up a loaf of bread. And, and you're 32 at the yeah, time. Yeah, go, go pick up a loaf of bread. <laughs> so I went in this little ante room, and you've got to remember that all along, Nixon had been saying that the committee's out to get me, the committee's out to get me, everybody's out to get him. And I dialed up the number to the White House and Mrs. Rosemary Wood, I knew that number. She was the, the lady who was Nixon's personal assistant. And, and I said, Ms. Wood, this is Rufus Edmiston, Deputy Chief Counsel of the Senate Watergate Committee. And Senator Irvin would like to speak to the president. And she said, hold on, I'll be, I'll be right back with you. And I assumed it's gonna be two or three hours later, something like that. And uh, all of a sudden this voice comes on the phone. Hello, Senator, this is Richard Nixon. Wow. I was so flabbergasted wow. that I blurted out, 
Mr. President, Senator Irwin wants to get you. On the phone, on the phone, sir. I, I have never felt so flabbergasted, so discombobulated in my life. Oh my God. And I said, I'm sorry, Mr. President, we'll be right back with you. And I walked in there and I, I briefly told them and they rolled in the floor. And then, then Senator Irwin got on the phone with the president. You could tell it wasn't going very well because the Senator's eyebrows were bouncing up and down oh my God. like windshield wipers when he would get excited and it ended up that the president said, we can't turn over the tapes. And then Senator Herman Talmadge of, of Georgia said, well, let's subpoena them. And there was a chorus, well, that's never been done from Capitol Hill. Yeah. And they agreed right there on the spot, unanimously, let's, let's subpoena the tapes. <laughs> Now I took a little. I took a Ruth, little. Rufus, little, go get him. I took a little congressional <laughs> privilege since I was running the show. I said I'll take the subpoena. Oh my god! Yeah. Oh, you offered. Yeah, you, you I, offered to do it. Yeah. So I, I offered Rufus to do that for for the audience. Most of the audience yeah. is is uh, uh, younger, my age and younger. So can you can you? put into terms because people look at Nixon in the history books now as a pariah, but he was a hugely popular and effective president. Uh, oh, Nixon had uh, up before the stupidity of Watergate mm -hmm. had done a lot of great things. He had opened up China, nuclear arms, nuclear arms, uh, the, the environmental protection agency, mm -hmm. their rivers would have probably been flooded. And during Watergate, we got all kinds of letters condemning the, the committee for attacking Nixon. Mm -hmm. And then my my epilogue will be how he screwed up. But anyway, I put was in the back of a police car and later my mama said, well, I'm glad you're in the back there for a good reason. And rode down to the White House with a subpoena. Wow. First time in history, and yeah. my, my heart was just fluttering because uh, I thought, had, my goodness, had to be. A, a, a cow milker from Boone. I was still, yeah. still 32 years old. Yeah. And, I, and, and this is a time where politicians, I mean, no, no one ever likes politicians, but there was a lot more respect. Oh, much respect. Especially around the office of the president than there is now. Oh, totally. And there, were, there was comedy. There was agreement. There was cheerfulness. They got to know one another. They didn't always leave leave Washington, and I served the subpoena, and I did a little a little trick, uh, which would be something that a boy from Boone would do. I had a little constitution in the back of my back pocket, and when I delivered that subpoena, I whipped that little constitution out and said, "I've heard it said that you need one of these down here too." Oh my goodness! Well, they didn't get mad about it, and then then the rest was history. The Supreme Court. Uh, after court you case. weren't afraid to push it. No, no, no you you no, I, you I, had a chip on I your had shoulder. I had to do it. I had know? to do it. I had to go. You on. were like, I'm I'm ready to hit that stand that standing it. switch if yeah, they try I had to anything. do that standing switch and <laughs> take it to the floor. <laughs> so bringing it back to wrestling, uh, this gentleman has so the standing switch is not a it, it it's typically done when you stand up and uh, somebody tries to return you to the mat. So they're already in a dominant position. This guy, it, it, it is not a common move in wrestling, or maybe it, maybe it was at the time, but it isn't now. He essentially grabs you by the wrist, yanks you forward, and throws his other arm over your shoulder and smashes your face into the mat. It's a very aggressive, uh, uh, yeah. non-common move. You, you fall backwards, and if they don't go, their arm's gonna break. Yes, it's brutal. It, it, it's brutal, so, it, it, it's nasty. So, you know, the, for the 7% of you that wrestled, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The rest of you, <laughs> his favorite move, it's the first thing that I asked him uh, before we started. His favorite move is like, basically the most brutal thing that you can do to a person. So you you decided I'm going to open I'm gonna do the with the standing, standing switch. switch on a standing president <laughs> that is hugely popular and uh, has an affinity for um, using that power to make others uncomfortable. Yes. Well, I respect and of course, Nixon refused to honor the subpoena. Mm -hmm. And so we and the special prosecutor took him to court the Supreme Court ruled eight to zero that if criminal acts are alleged, which is very relevant today, all this stuff that's going on, Absolutely. very relevant today. Mm -hmm. If criminal acts are alleged, 
you have no right to put forward the unenumerated doctrine of, of executive privilege mm -hmm. to refuse to give up the tapes. And I don't know why that's not been used more in today's currency. And the court ruled eight to zero that the president had to turn on those tapes. And then we know about all the prosecutions. We, we The committee finally went out of business. But my contention is that the, the basis of all that was done in Watergate with special prosecutor uh, was all because of the un the things that the Watergate committee mm. uncovered. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody, it, it was it, it was the last time a congressional hearing was ever held in this country where you had people seeking the truth without vengeance. Yeah, and uh, I, I, people often ask me about the January sixth committee. Well, I, I think it served a purpose, but it was so far removed from the Watergate committee mm -hmm. where where it was bipartisan. Why do you think that is? Well, because, because the, the, the January 6th committee was was very, I'm gonna use the word, very partisan. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the two Republicans on there uh, were put there because they disliked Trump so much. And it, it was more of a, a TV show. Yes. I mean, you're in the production business. Mm -hmm. You you watched that. You mm -hmm. saw it. Yeah. Watergate was unvarnished. You had the old cameras that weighed 200 pounds. Mm -hmm. Clegg lights that I remember were so, so hot that my mother made arm pads for me to put under my, wow. my armpits yeah. because I wouldn't mess up a suit. Yeah. It was so very hot, that caucus room. And it was more like a drama. And I, I'm not saying it was useless. It, it wasn't. It it was credible credible testimony, but from a, a one side. And and Watergate, though, as I said, was unvarnished, unpracticed. Uh, the only time that you could uh, even possibly say we practiced something was when we held an executive session before everybody went on public TV. Mm -hmm. But that was just that was a good old. Uh, proposition that no good lawyer ever forgets. Don't put somebody on the stand until you, unless you know what they're going to say. Oh yeah, yeah. And just like if, if we had put that crazy, uh, 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 he's he was a radio commentator. Uh, uh, I'm going to think of his name. He would have made a mockery of the of the the hearings. Sure. I'll, I'll think of his name in a minute. And we decided not to put him on. Uh, so quite different, but the, the Watergate hearings can be a, a good lesson for the acrimonious times we have today. And I want to tell you, I know we've been pushing the time here, but part of the problem. We, we have as much time as you want to give to, us. Sir. Today is that people in the Senate and the House don't really get to know one another for mm -hmm. this very simple reason. They come in on Tuesday. They stay there, and most of the time they're they're fundraising while they're there mm -hmm. in a local hotel or something. Mm -hmm. House members are are designed are assigned to go sit under in a little cubicle somewhere and put headphones and take calls, uh, take calls, make calls, and then they leave on Thursday, go home and fundraise again. I'll give you a good example. My my friend Joe Manchin from West Virginia, mm -hmm. the senator. Uh, he and I served together as secretaries of state. I was North Carolina secretary of state. He was secretary of state of West Virginia. Wow. And I went to visit him about four years ago. And I said, Joe, what do you think of this place? He said, I don't like it. He said, I was attorney general, our secretary of state and governor of West Virginia. And I got things done. He said, you know more people here than I do. And it's frustration because they don't get together anymore. They don't socialize. Yep. But when I was in Washington, D.C. from 64 to 74, you had these wonderful festivals. You had, you had the cherry blossom festival. Mm. You had uh, people doing things together. You you ate together. You stayed, in, and now you get condemned if you stay in Washington and do your job. You get condemned for it by saying you don't go home enough to be in contact with the people. Mm. It, it is a wacky system, totally wacky. When when you were in this world, were Republicans and Democrats friends? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. What, what, a good example was Jacob Javits of New York was probably the most liberal person in the 
uh, in the whole Senate and was a Republican to boot. And Senator Irvin couldn't stand his, his uh, ideology. But they were buddies mm. when it was over. Mm-hmm. They would take a drink. Mm-hmm. They would have fun in the caucus room. The, the, the caucus room or the, 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 the room after the, right off of the Senate was where all the fun went on. And then I went back there and you could hear them talk to one another. Uh, it, it, they were like cousins and friends. You had people at that time, like Everett Dirksen, the, the greatest orator that's probably next to one of the old timers in the Senate. Uh, people like that, Senator Wayne Morse, uh, they had their civil rights battles, of course, mm-hmm. uh, but they got along with one another. Even the, the James O. Eastland of Mississippi, you have friendships that were formed that I observed personally back then. I know it's hard for your, your listeners to understand that, but there was a time of civility. There was a time when you listened. One time Senator Irvin made a speech on the floor of the Senate about uh, prayer in the schools and he was opposed to it because he said, you don't, when you mix religion with politics, you, you lose religion, you mix religion with politics, you, you lose government. Mm-hmm. And he made this big speech about no prayer in the schools. Mm-hmm. Well, after it was over, Senator Wayne Morse of uh, Oregon walked up to him and I was in, in the little ante room the cloakroom, we call it. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he said, uh, Senator Moore says, Sam, I heard your speech and I've changed my mind. Hmm. I'm not going to vote for any prayer in the schools. That would never happen now. Never happen. No. That would never happen. It's he, all pre, yep. preset. Everybody knows except occasionally when, when that great senator from Arizona was around. Mm-hmm. You didn't know what he would do. Yep. And I, he was another character that I liked so much. Uh, I'm uh, I'm friends with his son. Great. Um, and, um, it, you know, his son is such a high integrity individual, doesn't like to be public. It doesn't like to trade off of his father's name. Um, and I've and I met the senator a few times. Wonderful. And um, he was to me what a statesman is supposed to be. But, you know, in the, you know, the end of his career, you know, largely through, you know, the the ripples he had with President Trump, you know, he was essentially labeled as a rhino. Oh, absolutely. Which was the most insane thing <clears throat> that I've ever heard. Oh, yeah. And had he won the presidency, he, he would have made a good uh, a good president, he, in my opinion. He would have been a great president. Yeah. Uh, no, the. the there are too many people today that listen to the the wackos on the left and the wackos on the right. Absolutely. And they don't leave room for people like me. I, I, I wouldn't win in, in my party today, uh, a Democratic Party. I, I wouldn't be liberal enough. I, I wouldn't be wacko enough, apparently, in the mm-hmm. in the Republican Party. And no, I don't think we ought to have an independent party. But there are some things that, that can the young people in this, this world can change this if they if they'll start realizing that democracy is too important to lose, you can lose it easily. We, we've, easily. Come, we've almost come to that point a couple mm-hmm. times. That 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 invasion on the Capitol, I always likened that to somebody breaking into my home. That was the American people's home. And how anybody could countenance that, mm-hmm. I have no earthly idea because if you do breaking and entering in North Carolina, you can get up to 25 years for it. And I, I just, I, I don't understand these things, but it, it's because basically people won't stop and listen to the other side. They don't listen at all. Yeah, uh, I, 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 I've tried not to be guilty of that, mm-hmm. of not listening. And it's hard sometimes. Yep. And, and most of the time, there's no right or wrong on it. There, there's always something that can appeal to both sides mm-hmm. if they'll find it. Yes. And Irvin found a way to do that. Now, he, he was known as criticized for his segregationist ways. Well, well that was the, the sign of the times, really. But look what he did otherwise. So many freedoms that he got for other people. And, and I still believe that we've got the, the best former government anywhere in the world but the truth about it is that 
They didn't believe in a complete democracy. I mean, that's. Oh, no. Well, the founders didn't do that because yeah. they, they wouldn't have put things in there like well, uh, two a, senators per state yeah, a or full, a full democracy, an electoral, uh, electoral college, yeah. or those foolish things. A true democracy is the oppression of the minority. Yeah. Always. Yeah. I you, mean, it, yeah, always. you, you, yeah, yeah. They, they didn't believe in a, a true democracy because they would leave no room for anybody. If you didn't agree with them, you get crushed. Mm -hmm. So it was a pretty wise bunch of people. Uh, it's amazing how there's been no document other than the Bible that's ever been twisted as much <laughs> in the discourse of mankind <laughs> than the Constitution <laughs> and the Bible. <laughs> that's good. Oh my goodness. That's good. Can I, Nick, do my first question for both of you? Sure. Um, I'm wondering where you think, where both of you guys think that downhill comes where Republicans and Democrats are no longer friends or can not really be friends anymore. Where did you start to see that downfall? Where do you think that downfall started for like American people and parties? I'll let you you start. I have my I, opinions. I think it started, I think it basically started when, when President Nixon instituted the Southern strategy, which was frankly based on race and led the, what we call Southern Democrats like, like I am to, to leave the party and go Republican. And then with the advent of political consultants, mm. that is really what started it. And I add on to that, the wackos radio TV on the left, wacko radio TV on the right, uh, it put people in polarized positions and left no room because you're, you're not a popular radio or TV star if you're just a simple moderate. Yes. That's not popular. Mm -hmm. You've got to put on a good show. And I saw this happening at least 40, 40 years ago and has increased more and more and more. And what I worry about now is that so many good people refuse to run for public office because they don't want to be brutalized. Yep. I don't know when you saw it happening, but. So, you know, I think you probably have a better sense of of when it started than I do, just because you've had you've watched this for years and you were so in it. For me, um, I, I felt like things got particularly unkind during the Obama administration. I think there's a lot of um, I think a lot of people went hard against President Obama. I think um, I think before that, I thought the, the Bush administration was very hard on Senator McCain. Uh, and, and there was a there was an an end of the traditional civility that uh, that I had seen prior to that. Um, I think the Internet makes it worse because, you know, I grew up in a time where half my family is very liberal, half my family is very conservative. We'd have dinner at our house. People would be yelling at each other, having these heated conversations. And then at some point my mom would be like, all right, that's enough. And then everyone's friends again. Well, now I don't have to be friends with people that don't believe exactly what I believe because I can go on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter and the algorithm is going to show me people that think like me so that we can all say the same things to yeah. each other. Yeah. And you start believing that anybody, that the whole world is like you. And anybody yeah. that is different essentially is your enemy. Reinforces your beliefs. Reinforces your belief. You, I can't possibly be wrong because all of these people believe as I do. And then, I, so I still think it was reasonable until the Trump administration. I think the, the, way that Donald Trump won the first election um, was civility was gone. He made fun of everybody. He, uh, you know, and he's very effective. Like I, I there, I'm not even judging right now. He made fun of people. He was very vicious in his attacks. Um, and, you know, because of like, you know, Citizens United, you essentially could have infinite money pumping, you know, into the equation to, 
you know, really push this to the limit. And because he was so different from anyone else that had ever run, at least in the modern era, it's great newstainment. So CNN loved him as much as, you know, they loved to hate him. Fox loved to love him. And there was this constant tension that got great ratings and people, people pick a side and all of a sudden, you know, even though Americans agree on, I think it's something like 84% of all issues, um, we almost think that we're on diametrically opposed where, you know, I've been to, I don't know, 57, 58 countries or something. America's a good place to be. It is a good place to be. And, Doggone right. And we, if we don't appreciate it, it will not stay this way. Yeah. And that, that doesn't, it does not stay this way. If I think somebody that is on the other side of an issue that is, you know, has a slightly different opinion than me is my enemy. So I think there's been a downward trend for a while. And I think the internet exacerbates that. But I do think it got really bad during the, the trial. Well, you mentioned something that I think has been one of the worst decisions the Supreme Court ever handed down. The first one was the Dred Scott decision, which said that slavery is okay. Yep. And then the, the next worst, in my opinion, was Citizens United. Yeah. Uh, when you go to law school, the first thing you learn in corporations is a corporation is not a person. Supreme Court comes down and says, yes, for speech purposes, a corporation is a person Mm -hmm. and you can give any amount of money you want to messed up things all the way around. I totally agree. I'm laughing because um, I literally made that exact statement uh, on a show that we we filmed uh, four days ago. I said the only, and I'm not a lawyer, so because uh, I feel pretty good about myself right now because oh, okay. you just said that uh, I said citizens, you know, I said it's the worst Supreme Court decision. I was like, no, let me hold, let me take that back. Dred Scott was worse, <laughs> and this is the second worst. So I just want, I want all of you to know that while I'm not an attorney. I have a great attorney backing me up on this right now. He, he, he knocked it out of the park. <laughs> and now it's time for the Warrior Rising Veteran Entrepreneur of the Week. Warrior Rising is the preeminent veteran entrepreneurship charity in the galaxy. Warrior Rising provides education, mentorship, grants, and more to veteran entrepreneurs. No one helps build more successful veteranpreneurs than Warrior Rising. Each week, Warrior Rising selects one veteranpreneur to feature in our program. Here's this week's. How do you make a chocolate bar with only three ingredients? Sounds impossible, right? Like cold fusion, convincing flat earthers that the world is a sphere, getting slow people out of the left lane on the highway, or only having one slice of pizza. But the fine people at Bone Appa Sweet have done just that. I know, I know. My guest was flabbergasted as well. Cocoa powder? Check. Cocoa butter? Check. Dates for sweetening? Check. Microplastics? Not so fast. Apparently, microplastics in chocolate bars are a thing. I'm no scientist, but that sounds bad. But you'll get none of that in Bone Appa Sweet. So if you're looking for a chocolate bar that is nothing but unbridled goodness without the unpronounceable ingredients, plastic, and big brand marketing spin, then visit boneappasweet.com. That's boneappasweet.com. I feel like we could talk about pretty much anything for for any amount of time. And it, it would be very interesting to me. Um, we do like to close the show off with some rapid fire, weird questions. You can skip any of them you don't want to answer. Uh, and they're not serious questions necessarily. So if well, I won't plead the Fifth Amendment, but I might. You plead, can, I mean, you I can. might plead ignorance. <laughs> these are these are easy. I don't think you'll need to do that. All right. The first question, my favorite question always. Uh, and I'm very interested in your your answer, given your background. What is the toughest animal that you think you could defeat in hand-to-hand combat? I think I could defeat, oh God, not a kangaroo. Uh, the toughest animal I could defeat would be a bear with no, with declawed bear. <laughs> <laughs> I like it, I like it. Uh, are we talking brown bear, black bear? No, black bear, not brown bear. <laughs> and I said declawed. <laughs> I like the specificity. I feel like you've thought about this before. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. You're restarting your life at 18 years old. We are going to wipe your mind 
of all knowledge and skills except for one skill. What is the one skill you're keeping? I'm going to keep the skill of being able to build a fire out in the woods as a Boy Scout. That, that's a very good skill. I love it. Um, you are God of America or genie of America for a day. You can make one permanent change to the way this country works, whether it's how we interact or the, the Constitution, the government, whatever. What is the one change you're going to make? Well, if I can, if I can make it health-wise, I'll whip out the human suffering and diseases. But I doubt, I doubt you'll let me get by with that, since it's not not governmental. Right. I, I would wipe out the stupid electoral college, and just let whoever gets the most votes win. Okay. All right. I'm gonna. I have to ask a, another question on that. Do you worry that, given that, that? Um, you are going to re remove the minority opinion. Not on, not on the electoral college. I, you I, think I the think, Senate's enough? I think you can get it in. You can get it in the Senate. You can get it with. Uh, I, I I would have a hard time doing away with the filibuster because it allows minority opinions to come mm -hmm. through, and I I I think that the electoral college is so confusing that it that it it it, it really. It's not really an anachronism, it's a hindrance. Mm. And that's why I think it ought to be done away with. You can get rid of one state. The state stays, still stays in the union, but it's no longer its own state. It, it blends with something near it. Which state are we getting rid of? We're gonna get rid of... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're gonna get rid of California and let it go to Mexico. <laughs> Let it go to Mexico. We're just getting rid of it entirely. It's not even going to be part of the country anymore. Oh, I love it. I love it. Is there anything that you wish I had asked you that I have not asked you? Uh, am I going to write another book? Are you going to write another book? Uh, sometime I think I will when a number of other people have left this earth. <laughs> because I don't want to write a book and hurt anybody. But I do have a book out there. It's called That's Rufus. And uh, I have committed all of the, the funding to that book to the Super Kids. So if you That's want to amazing. order it, you can go to Amazon and get it. It's called That's Rufus. That's amazing. We'll throw all the information up on the screen for you. Well, Rufus, thank you so much for coming on. I, I really appreciate it. This was a blast for me. Um, incredibly thoughtful conversation. I can't believe how much history you've been a part of and i especially love the fact that uh uh the constitution that you handed to nixon is just that's an insane <laughs> I just, I, well um, i'm so impressed that you're a wrestler <laughs> never mind all these other ones just wrestling i mean really that's that's tough nobody ever mentions that in my career you're, once you're a wrestler, you're always a wrestler. You know? Yeah. It's just how it is. Thank you, sir. Great. Thanks all this great help you got. Oh, me? <laughs> <laughs>